You're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and uh, today it's just me flying solo. Um, Emily and I do have plans for uh, some future podcasts, but right now she is burning the candle at both ends uh, with her business, and uh, and uh, our time together is limited. So I, I, I'd i like to be consistent with these things. Um, I've put some thought into it, and it's not for any sort of commercial appeal or listenership as much as it is. I really find uh, that doing these podcasts um, makes it kind of forces me into the ritual of sitting down and thinking about what I want to do, and uh, and I think it's really beneficial for me uh, in that regard. And so I'm going to, I'm going to just try to hold myself to a little more of a standard. Um, and I will go ahead and say at least every other week, I'm going to try to sit down Monday afternoons. I'm going to block that time. Um, kind of have my companion gun dog client in here with me as I sit down to record. And then hopefully we can get back to, uh, a few more co-hosted episodes with Emily as, as we get, uh, you know, things moving in the right direction and can kind of get our calendars, uh, synced up, but, uh, that's tough. As y'all know, we're all out there working hard and, uh, and time is a commodity. So, um, for the sake of discipline and for the sake of myself, I'm going to sit down and, uh, and try to get this knocked out every other Monday from this point forward. Um, yeah, what I don't want to do is like run out of topics or just blabber on. So I'm, I, I'm going to sit down uh, on the off week on Monday afternoons, you know, run through topics that I think are pertinent that, uh, that could be valuable to folks. And, um, and then I'm going to write up my notes, put some deep thought into it, uh, search, uh, some references and, uh, and move forward today. I'm going to talk a little more about something I've actually discussed on this podcast quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to be redundant, but I don't think I've done a really good job of tying this topic together. And that is going to be, uh, thoughts on chase recall and woe. It's, it's, I think it's something that defines the way I train dogs, the way I think about chase recall and woe. And, uh, and it's where I tend to diverge from, uh, from many other folks, uh, in the gun dog space. And it's not necessarily because I think, uh, I've got some magic system or anything like that. It's mostly because, and, and as I've discussed in the past, it's my background informing kind of my, uh, my present self as a dog trainer. Um, and, and coming from, uh, the, uh, the kind of subcultures that I came from before I got to hunting dogs as a profession, um, you know, uh, it, it has more than informed who I am. I can't even step outside of that way of thinking at this point. So I want to just really do my best to organize my thoughts and express them in this podcast. So, uh, I, I'm going to title this episode, um, making then taming the monster. All right. So you've heard me in the past talk about making a monster out of our puppies. Uh, I've done an entire series on the first year of field, which covers everything I'm going to talk about in here. It just doesn't really do it in a very, um, organized in linear fashion. So that's, that's what I'm aiming at today. Uh, again, this was prompted by a, a phone call I had, uh, I spoke to him today, um, with a young man, but it started with some Instagram, 
um, messages. And he has, like me, he, he came from a protection sports background um, and then uh, got into retrievers. And now he's got his first bird dog. And he had some questions because things arise when, especially if you have a, a background in, uh, in protection sports, and especially that, that progression from protection sports to retrievers and then to bird dogs, things shift wildly when you get into a pointing dog. Uh, and their nature, uh, their genetics, the generations and generations um, of stalk, refined stalk into point are telling them to do things that are very unnatural uh, to, to trainers like us that have been used to forward progression from dogs. Right. Uh, and, and, and what I'm talking about is in terms of prey. So when I talk about making a monster, I'm talking about essentially what people might uh, call prey building or, or drive building. Um, and, uh, and this is a very, very important part of young dog development in the protection sports. Um, it, it's, you know, again, it's, it, it's a topic that's not new to this podcast. I did cover it. Uh, also in uh, a recent episode I did with, uh, with Nick Adair of, uh, GDIY. Um, you know, we just, it was his no woe series, which I, I, I found really, um, helpful in forming thoughts, like going back and listening to, uh, many of the other trainers he had on that series where, um, it was a, a series on woe and the importance of the, command or the word or the behavior, uh, whatever, however people define that, um, in bird dog training. And I kind of, you know, brought up a bit of the tail in there with, uh, the kind of the no woe approach. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about that and, you know, and, and I said it there and I'll say it here, like there's value in, in getting your dog to stop in motion and stay put. And, and I use it. Um, it just is not a found, it's not a, a, an important part of my foundation. Uh, and it's, and it's a part that I often find gets in the way of what I'm trying to accomplish when I'm building my foundation and my young dogs. And so I tend to, especially with my client dogs that are here kind of for the novice, the, uh, uh, basic pointing dog program, if you will, you know, what I expect and what the great majority of the clients uh, that I get for that program are going to, you know, they're going to have young dogs. They're going to be maybe on their first bird dog ever, or uh, they haven't really trained their own bird dog. And they're, and they're really looking to build a, a, a solid foundation for moving forward with a bird dog. I like to limit that course to six weeks. And I do that because I don't, I think in experience is so important that we tend to overtrain uh, before we get our young dogs into the field and give them the experience of being a hunting dog and a bird dog. And so, um, you know, as I've discussed in the past, uh, I want, I want to make a monster when I have a young dog. So I'm going to, I'm going to basically talk about it as if it's my dog right now, but essentially most of the, the, dogs that are coming to my basic pointing dog program are going to get something similar if they need it. Um, and, and so, uh, as, as I stated before, this line of thinking, this way of thinking about dog training, working dogs that are, whether they're going to hunt, um, or engage a bad guy, uh, you know, it's, 
it, it, it all kind of started with me when I first got into, into protection sports. So, uh, I ended up, you know, when I was 19 years old, I got really excited about dog training. Um, I'll spare you the whole story cause I've said it on here before, but, uh, ended up at a Schutzen club and that Schutzen club was in Jacksonville, North Carolina. It was the Jacksonville Schutzen club. Um, and it, it was it was really in the days before the internet, the, the forums were kind of around at that point, but they really, they still hadn't, um, taken their, their final form. Uh, and now those are, 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 you know, just a piece of history to us to this point. So, you know, what we had to go on was, was kind of folk thinking, like just stuff that had been either, you know, put in a book, uh, or had been passed down from generation to generation. And I remember when I showed up like on day one with my new Malinois puppy, uh, I was first greeted by a lady named Tanya Purcell and I, wherever she is, I hope she's well, she was a, a pretty big influence on me early on. Um, she was, a, a kind of a big time, uh, regional Schutzen player, I guess there she, but she had moved in that world for quite a long time. She was a very, um, uh, experienced trainer and, and kind of her first advice to me was like, scrap the obedience. Don't even think of that at this point in time. Like you've got this puppy, you need to make every experience out here positive for a lack of a better term. This dog, this puppy needs to come out here and be excited to come to club. It needs to see what's going on. It needs to, uh, to thrive and come into drive when it gets here and we'll give it just enough to, to kind of light that fire and, uh, and continue to fan, fan it until it's, uh, until it's burning bright and bold. And, and so I took that advice. I came to club and everybody kind of was, uh, was in on that with her, you know, I didn't get any you know, contradicting statements, at least early on that I needed a lot of control. Um, what I wanted to do was and what I was told I needed to do was build a really strong, confident dog first. And that there was plenty of time for me to come back later and kind of peel the layers off until I was able to mold it into what I wanted it to be. And, and I still think in that in that general philosophy when I think of making a working dog. And so it does, it definitely runs contradictory when we think of bird dogs to, um, to kind of traditional ways of thinking, right? Like it, it, you know, a lot of folks still to this day are like, never let the dog chase and that's fine. But to me personally, chase is, nothing could be more important than when I'm starting my young dog. Right. And the only things that I I want to see along with that are the desire to capture and possess. I talk, I've talked about it before. I want to make a predator. Um, so in making that, uh, in that predator, I'm going to come out and I'm going to bring my puppy out. I'm going to ritualize the act of coming into the bird field. Uh, the first time that puppy ever sees a bird, it's going to be, um, it's going to be visible, visible. It's going to be visually stimulating. Uh, I will likely have introduced that puppy to a uh, warm dead bird before. Um, but if I haven't, you know, it'll be a, a bird that's compromised to the point that the puppy's not going to struggle with it, you know, and I'm going to hope, and I'm going to encourage that puppy to go out there and, um, and to satiate its predatory instincts 
by chasing that thing and capturing it and possessing it, whether it wants to bring it back to me. Some do. Um, some are trepidatious. They don't want to go out there and jump on their bird right off the bat. Um, they see it moving. Some of them will go out there and point it, you know, and I don't get worried about any of that stuff. I'm not, you know, um, <coughs> if I see my puppy go out there and point a bird on sight on the ground, kind of flopping around on the ground, I also don't get super excited because the dog's got a ton of point. Um, because I, I, you know, this, this, it may be a hard thing for some folks to hear, but, um, I doesn't get me super pumped, uh, to know that I've got this dog that's got so much point in it that it, it refuses to chase and capture and possess early on. And, and the reason for that is if I don't have that history, um, to lean on in that puppy of satisfying those, those kind of carnal instincts, um, then I'm not putting that money in the bank, you know? And so it may point, uh, but at some point down the road, if I ask it to be steady later in training and it's never had the experience of satisfying its drive, uh, then I, I'm, I might be, uh, heading into a situation where it's confused or it can become even more worrisome or trepidatious about what that bird means to it. So I'm, I'm developing my relationship between my predator and my prey. Uh, if I'm doing that with a, a potential protection sport prospect, a Schutzen prospect or PSA or a police dog puppy, the, you know, prospect puppy, whatever it is, I'm going to come out and, uh, and I'm going to tease it up with usually like an inanimate object. What we're trying to teach a protection sport puppy to do is engage uh, a human being, right? So if it's, uh, you know, if it's going to be a police dog, it may actually have to go out in the street one day and tussle with a grown man. Um, and in most scenarios, that grown man has a big brain and opposable thumbs and is really strong and is normally at least twice to three times the size of the dog that's engaging it. Um, you know, from a survival instinct, uh, uh, perspective, it's not really smart for that dog to go out there and to pick a fight or, or to engage in a fight with a full grown human being. Um, it's a fight that that dog should not win and, and, you know, uh, in all reality, but we're going to take that puppy and we're going to teach it over the course of time that it's always going to win. We're going to build confidence. And that, and that's the same way I'm thinking of this bird that this, I don't ever want this dog there ever to be a question in my dog's mind that that bird can cause it harm. I want it to believe that it is out there and it's the master of its domain. It controls the environment. It controls the bird early on. And then I can slowly start showing it that there's boundaries and rules. And the same applies for those protection sport puppies. We go out there and early on, you know, we're going to develop specific behaviors, maybe a full mouth grip um, and, and hanging on, you know, and then as that puppy matures and it loves that game and it's beginning to engage a human being, then I might teach it off site somewhere how to release, how to out. Um, but before I teach an out, I'd, and before I worry about an out, maybe, and I might teach my out parallel to this in, in play. And that's often done like in tug work with a protection sport prospect. Um, but before I worry about it on the field, I want to make sure that I've got this super confident puppy that is not 
is not scared of its playmate. That's, you know, whether it be a decoy, whether it be a lot of handlers will start this work on their own. Um, but this is not a real fight. You know, it's not, you're not going out there and it being a matter of life or death and you having to engage this big bad guy on the other side of the field from you. I want that person to be, um, again, a playmate. I want them to be somebody that's going to go out there and have fun and tussle and create some competitive aggression through prey. So when we think about what a protection sport dog needs to show as a finished product, I think most people would like to see some level of aggression. Um, and when we talk about aggression, usually, and I like to think of it kind of split into, into two, uh, um, kind of categories. I think of it as competitive aggression and defensive aggression and defensive aggression is a, it can be the picture that maybe the judge on the Schutzen field wants to see defensive aggression is powerful. It's real, it's raw, but in my opinion, most defensive aggression comes from a place of fear. And I do not want to expose my young puppy to that emotional state early on. Because there's two sides to that coin, fight or flight, right? And so if I if I take my young puppy and through prey, teach it to be a powerful, confident fighter, as imagining I'm sending it to karate school or you know, whatever, you can tell how much I know about martial arts by, by that statement, um, but assume I'm sending it to wrestling practice or whatever, there's no fear that if you lose this fight, you're going to die. Um, and there's no fear, honestly, early on that you're going to lose this fight. You're going out to practice. You're going out to have fun. You're going out to learn to to be playfully aggressive. But there's no there's no real threat. And as you mature and your the the muscle memory, the mechanics of your job um, become stronger, you become better at it. Then, at some point, we can begin to add maybe a little bit of a threat. Um, and that brings out a little bit of defensive aggression. But now that you're so confident engaging that that grown human decoy that you're willing to commit in a way you may not have been earlier. And now you know how to win the fight. You know how to get what you want. And then we get into what we call later on drive channeling. And so I can take that dog, engage it in the fight and through through prey initially uh, and then put a little bit of a threat to it and it gets real for a moment and then boom, it wins whatever piece of equipment I happen to be using, whether that sleeve or that, uh, or that suit. And that dog gets to be the winner by possessing that piece of gear and carrying it around, showing it off and leaving the field with it. That's, that is a very common, uh, progression in the protection sports. That's how we build them. That's how we make them confident. We may move on to muzzle work later, uh, and, and things like that. But early on, this is how we take this dog and show him, Hey, okay. Hey, we're having fun. Ooh, it got real. Get serious for a second. You better get in the fight. And Oh, you don't have to be so concerned because you kick that guy's butt. And now you own this piece of gear. You took it away from him. You're the winner. He's scared. He's running off, whatever it happens to be. However, the decoy happens to play it. Um, and, and, we're getting towards the end of that progression. We've got it. You know, once now we can begin to add our control. Right. And, uh, and, and when we add control, when we put obedience in bite work, um, we're dealing oftentimes with like competing motivators and it's really nice 
when you think about it uh, from this term's got, been tossed around a little bit, but it, a drive capping uh, perspective that now I have this decoy on the field that has the ability to trigger certain emotions in my dog independent of me. And so that guy can play along with me. And when I have a bird dog, that doesn't exist. The bird is not there to be my helper. But what I have kind of managed to do through controlling the environment is to treat my bird like my helper, uh, like my decoy. So, um, you know, I know if I have really strong flying birds in good cover, and what I mean by good cover is it's not too dense, it's not too sparse, it's going to allow for airflow, my my environment is uh, is beneficial to what I'm trying to accomplish. My temperature, my air flow, all these things. My dog can find that bird. And now it's going to help me because it's strong and it has the survival instinct to spring and get away from my dog when I want it to. And so now that's going to help me down the road and with those more finished behaviors, what I expect of a, a bird dog to, to stop and be staunch. And eventually to be steady to to wing shot and fall or whatever my object long term objectives are, but um, you know that's I wanted to compare and contrast and talk about the similarities and differences between protection dogs and and especially bird dogs um, because I've I've so often referenced that in the past my my background with that and so and 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 it's always said that that informs the way I think about bird dogs and so for me. Until that puppy is confident to step on that field and knows what a bird is, knows that it's prey, that the puppy feels confident that it's a predator. So I've gone, when I talk about making a monster, the first step is making a predator. He has that relationship with that bird. He understands what it is. And now when I come back later and I start to add some rules, I, I, I don't run the risk of there being that confusion where this dog goes, is it okay for me to challenge this bird? Is it a thing? Do I need to worry about the bird? Where is this coming from? Do I need to be, worry about the bird being a threat to me specifically is what I'm getting at. And I never, ever, ever want my puppies, my young dogs to believe that the bird is any sort of threat, whether that be literal by being flogged or, or spurred early on. So it's going to, you know, if I'm out there using a, a weaker quail, um, it's going to get some feedback from that bird. Odds are that bird's not going to be able to challenge the dog in such a way by flogging or spurring that's going to deter the dog. Sometimes it happens and sometimes you have to be, you know, you kind of, there's certain tricks we'll use to kind of encourage that puppy, build confidence in dealing with that animal. But if, if the very first time <clears throat> I shoot a bird over my dog, it's a cock pheasant, and I wing it and my bird gets there and catches it and he gets a good flogging and a spur and that could be, that could be pretty detrimental to that dog's uh, emotional state and desire to continue playing that game. And it's getting a literal threat from the bird that it doesn't like. So I mitigate that initially through this kind of bird exposure. I'm teaching it that, Hey, you can go out there and you can tussle with this bird and it can give you some feedback and you can win. And then progressively those birds may get stronger. Um, you know, we, I'll do my best, hopefully before I ever go pheasant hunting to expose my, my young dog to, to a pheasant, you know, and I'm always going to make sure that that's in a controlled way, uh, that, um, is not going to allow for there to be a literal threat from the bird. The next threat would be the figurative threat. If my dog goes out there and challenges that bird and I go, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm yanking him around. Well, now we've developed this association between a bird and, and pain that may be coming from us, but that bird now represents that. 
Um, it, it represents that literal threat. If, Hey, if you get too close to this thing, you may, you may feel some very natural instincts to go pursue this thing and to capture it and possess it, but we're not going to allow for that. And if you do it, um, that, that sort of behavior will be punished with, you know, physical force from the handler. Now people can be very good at this. Um, and, and there are many systems that don't allow for early chase and capture and possession. Um, but a good trainer can kind of read what state their dogs in and protect drive and promote good behaviors. I feel like if we come up and the, and the very first relationship my dog has with a bird is that it can kick its butt and chase it down and do whatever it wants and own it, then I've kind of mitigated having to even think about that moving forward. And that's in most cases. And in some cases we have very trepidatious dogs by nature and we have to continue to nurture it a little more. Sometimes we have things creep in that we didn't intend to creep in and we need to step back in training and kind of rehab that by reintroducing this relationship with birds. Um, and, and so we might get a dog that, you know, through an ill-timed correction or whatever may decide to be a blinker at some point or may become gun shy and associate that with the birds and, and avoid birds for that reason late down the road. And, and normally my course of action for that rehab is to go ahead and reintroduce that predator prey relationship. So in, in that step of, you know, making that puppy step of making that monster, I always talk about the very first thing I'm doing is making uh, making my predator and that, and that's what it is. And, um, and, you know, and one thing I, you know, I, I didn't mention retrievers, but there, there's some of this in there. Um, the act of retrieving, if we take the hunting side out of it. So oftentimes we may shoot a duck that falls into cover. It may be a cripple and, and our retrievers are going to have to, uh, to become hunting dogs at some point. But I, in my opinion, the difference between a a bird dog, pointing dog that's a questing dog in the field and a retriever for the most part, there's a pretty uh, marked difference between what we're asking of those two dogs. And so, you know, a great retriever is an enormous asset, but for the most part, there's a level of control that we're stepping into much sooner. And so if I'm going to be doing upland work, um, all my retrievers are going to go through this basic same process for the most part, because I ask them very often to be in the upland field with me. Um, and also I, I want, I, you know, I want them to be capable of breaking down and hunting very hard independently, even if I'm waterfowl hunting. And, and some folks are less into that than I am, but that's, that's an important part of, uh, of a waterfowl retriever to me. So, so even though the, the end goal, um, in building, you know, a bird dog and a retriever, uh, uh, are, are not completely similar. They're not really similar at all, uh, until we maybe get into some of the versatile breeds. And that's something we'll talk with Emily about in the, in the near future is maybe the, uh, the similarities and differences between, um, you know, maybe somebody that wanting to play NAVDA and HRC maybe, or somebody that's kind of bouncing back and forth between some versatile bird dog work and retriever work and, and where, lessons can maybe be taken from one and applied to the other, but, but, you know, not to get too far off track with that. Um, you know, my retrievers, because I'm going to ask them to be flushers for the most part, they're always to me, the, the, the wonderful thing about a, a lab, especially is the versatility. 
And more than likely, they're going to spend more time dealing with upland birds in some fashion with me than they will with waterfowl. And so for that reason, I'm going to take this same approach. And and I want to make that predator. I want them to feel comfortable operating independently, seeking, searching, finding, chasing, capturing, possessing. Um, We'll we'll deal with the retrieving part. You know, if I if I've got a dog that wants to possess, more than likely, I mean, and I in this, you know, and and this isn't fair. I mean, you can be creating some problematic behaviors in this. If you've got a dog that's super possessive, uh, you might have to overcome that. I'm lucky, in in that I've done this a long time that I have some experience to lean on in that regard, and it doesn't really scare me in 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 any way. I'm happy to to take on that challenge. If what I do is make a dog that's too drivey and too possessive. Um, well then I can, you know, I, I, f- I feel confident that I have the experience and the skill set to whittle that down into what I want to make it eventually. Um, so, so sure there are, you know, taking this approach could, could come with that risk. Uh, and that's a risk that I'm willing to take. And I would like for folks, I think, you know, I, th- and, and this is, this is a con to this way of thinking about bird dog training is that sometimes you can make a dog, uh, that you're going to have to bring under control and you're not starting from a place of control. And, um, and, and that can be pretty intimidating to folks because the problem is I, you know, a lot of times I do get people and that are like, man, my dog's crazy. He just ch- runs them up, chases them. And I can't, you know, and I, for me, I'm happy to hear that. I know what I've got to start with and, uh, and I know where I'm going. And so, you know, understand that when you, when you think this way about bird dogs is you might, you know, put yourself in situations where you have to work your way out of problematic behaviors that, uh, that could be associated with high states of drive. Um, but that's the whole idea. That's what we're, we're doing, you know, and, uh, I would much rather ha- be dealing with that higher state of drive, uh, than one that I'm having to, um, uh, to kind of prop up along the way or to help be more confident, you know, because it's lacking confidence for one reason or another. Um, I wanted to, you know, when we, so I, I think, I think that covers making the predator pretty well. Right. So we talk about the ritual of stepping out onto that bird field with our puppy. Everything's visual to begin with. I'm going to use a lot of like back pressure and stuff. These are lessons I learned from my time in protection sports. I want my dog to pull on the leash. I want him to to dig in and, and try to drag me to that bird. If that's that's just another indicator to me that he's not concerned with what's going on in the environment. He's concerned with cap you know capturing his prey, and that's what I want in terms of making that predator. When I move into making a hunting dog, this is where I definitely fall early on in, in line with the West method. So you've, you've kind of heard me bring that up in the past and this is so, and, and they, you know, um, I recently went back and watched, uh, training labs to, to point birds, the video with Bill West on YouTube, uh, watched it again recently. And, you know, and he brought it up. He talked about, you know, before he starts, he wants that dog to be confident running in there and, and going after those birds and chasing them and, and wanting them, you know, that the wanting them, is, is the important first step. So I, I don't think I'm far off of that. I think I might be a little, uh, taking a little more intense approach to making them want the bird than, than, you know, maybe other trainers in that system or method. But, um, 
But for the most part, I think we're heading in the same direction. And a lot of guys will tell you too, and, and this is not untrue, that that should be in the dog to begin with. They should want, they you know, they should be a bird hunting dog. They should want the bird um, from the word go. And many do. And many will come out on the very first day and show you that you got, you don't need to sit around on, on that phase of training for too long. But even some of the best bred bird dogs on the planet will come out and, and have some conflicted thoughts in that scenario. And so I want to move past those conflicted thoughts before I move on. Um, but, you know, moving beyond making the predator and then I'm thinking of making the hunting dog. Right. And so the environment becomes a little less controlled at first. I'm going to want to see that dog go out there. He's come out, had his visual stimulation or her visual stimulation, um, drug me into the bird, all that stuff. Now I want to come out and that bird will become, it's not going to be a visual indicator right off the bat. You're going to have to go look for it. And then you look for it and you kind of go through that same sequence again. I'm not necessarily trying to, to create finished behaviors in you to this point. And I'm not even trying to start started behaviors uh, at this point, I just want you to sh- to show me that you know why you're there and you're there to go find birds and and get them because you're a predator. Uh, once once we're moving into shaping the behaviors that will make our hunting dogs something that we can actually take a field and go hunting. For me, because I rely primarily on pin raised birds through the entire process, um, I'm going to move into that. West Gibbons Lindley type of system. I'm going to start controlling my environment with my check cord and pinch collar. So it's, and I'm going to start that by coming out with my young dog early. And then when they're in that kind of learning to be a hunting dog phase that are the end of the predator phase, transitioning into learning to be a hunting dog phase, they're dragging their check cord. They're, they're feeling the pinch collar. They know they're familiar with the equipment before I bring them out and just rode them around the field on it. But what I want is, uh, is again, and I've discussed this in the past, is, is to, for them to learn to do the dance with me. I want them to stay forward. Uh, I want them to even give me a little bit of back pressure, but not drag me afield. And, uh, and I want them to lead me, but I want to influence the way they approach the field. And when they enter a scent cone... I want to be prepared to launch a bird from a launcher. So this is where I'm moving into pigeons and launchers. Uh, I'm going to have done a launcher intro first, and I've talked about that in the past. Um, but I, I, I like, I think, and, and I'll do this with dogs at every phase. I think it's always best if I can hit that scent cone at a 90 degree angle. I'm walking into it perpendicular to the scent cone. I'm going to see the just noticeable difference from my dog, and bam, I'm going to pop that launcher before I expect any behavior from him. I'm not asking him to point. But this is the phase where he's learning that, hey, your proximity to that bird and your action in the presence of that bird um, elicits a reaction from that from the bird. That's when he leaves. And this is when I expect to see caution. So I'm, this is where I'm going to start making that dog staunch. So this is making my hunting dog. At this point, um, I'm, I'm moving on. Once I'm comfortable that I have a dog that is relatively staunch. I would love it if they go out there and many do. So if I have those dogs with that high pointing instinct that came out and especially the the dogs that were high pointing instinct, almost problematic on my bird intro because they weren't showing me the predatory instincts I wanted to see. This is where they're going to show you immediately. Oh, I know what it means to be a pointing dog. I don't have to think about it. This is, this is what's programmed in my DNA. So that first time they step into the scent cone and that bird leaves, it's very, very common to walk in the second time and that dog hit a super staunch point and not budge. 
Uh, but what I think of when I think of staunch is a dog that hits that, establishes point, and allows me to move around and stays focused on the bird and doesn't challenge the bird until I make action to flush the bird. That is steady to wing. That's what I consider a staunch dog. It, you're not always going to get all the way there. Some dogs are going to be very aggressive, predatory type of dogs, and they're not going to give you all you want to see. I'm not going to get hung up on getting steady to wing before I move on um, with those types of dogs. There's there's things that are going to aid aid me to in, down the road in getting to that kind of more staunch type dog. Um, but the first thing I need to do is to introduce the gun safely and effectively. Um, and I've done a gun intro podcast. I, I'm not going to run over the whole thing here for the sake of time, but I take it very seriously. And I, the last thing in the world I want to do is gun shy a dog before I send them home. So I certainly suggest you, uh, you know, put some research into, into that gun intro, right? So get that done. So now I got a relatively staunch dog at a minimum that has a gun intro if that's all I ever have in that dog, I have got a hunting dog. I've got a dog that I can take, especially out on wild birds, and it's only going to get better. It's It already has the concept of being staunch down. It wants to hunt for the bird. It knows what the what gunfire is. The retrieving and all that stuff, whether it chooses to, now, you know, you may run the risk at this point in time. You got that possessive dog, you shoot your bird and he runs over there, picks it up, runs away with it. That's possible, but it, it got you there in the first place. So I'm, you know, to finish that out, obviously we want our either retrieve or at least go show me where the bird is, hopefully. Um, or don't molest the bird at all, move on to the next. I mean, whatever it is, you found me the bird. I put the bird on the ground. That's the first course of action. You have a hunting dog. If you, if you've got behaviors you need to manage after that, then, then that's kind of, in my opinion, kind of a separate course of action. Now, if a dog's going to come to me for a six week basic program and it's super possessive, we're going to deal with that in that program. We're going to, and we're certainly at the very least going to attempt to deal with that program in the program and, and overcome it. Um, very, very seldom am I not going to be able to get that dog to at least come back to me with that bird, uh, or hopefully just leave it where it sits or point it or whatever its natural inclination kind of is telling you what, telling it what to do with the bird. If it's possess, you can possess it in the, in the interim between the time you pick it up and you get it back into my hands. If it's not possess, if you don't have a lot of possession in you, then you can go back and point it or you can move on. Um, hopefully you show me where that bird is, but I can't force that. You know, one thing that's important to understand is you can never force a dog to hunt. You can only allow a dog to hunt. You can manipulate the environment in such a way that promotes hunting behaviors, but you can't make a dog hunt. And if you try, you're liable to create problems. And that I've seen that many, many times in, in a variety of types of dogs, and especially in detection dogs. Um, so... So I would caution anyone that's frustrated with a dog that may not be going to look for a piece of dead game, especially uh, to get in there and kind of get get fussy with it and and try to force the issue because you're only likely to take the take the fun out of it even more if that makes sense. Um, so and I don't want to spend all day on this cause I've done it a lot. I did it in, uh, in the GDIY episode and I did it in my series on that first year of field, but making the bird dog, you know, these kind of finished behaviors. And, but this is really important because now I start to talk about chase. Um, and yeah, and I, I titled this, you know, the subtitle of this episode is dealing in chase 
recall and, uh, and woe. Um, and I really haven't gotten to any of that stuff to break it down to this point, but it's really important to me that my dog have the desire to chase. So even when I'm doing my launcher work, you know, I can do a couple of things. I can go out there, dogs on check cord. Um, early on, I'm rarely dropping the check cord until the point of the flush, but oftentimes I will drop the check cord at the point of the flush. And I want to see the dog chase. I want that desire to be left in the dog at this point. It's very important to me. And I'm hoping that that chase is kind of eliciting that, that shot of dopamine that's bathing the brain as it, as it's chasing. Um, I want that. That's, I'm, that to me holds the power of positive reinforcement down the road. Once I, you know, my ultimate goal is to teach a dog to manage their chase, not to take the chase completely out of them. And if that dog proves to me that it can cap drive and manage chase, then now I have the power to allow for chase when I feel like it's warranted or when it's necessary. And there are times where I feel like it it not only is warranted, but it is necessary. So if I see a dog that's either beginning to, if I'm starting to see some interest fade, maybe because it's seen a whole lot of birds fly, but it hasn't really gotten to engage them, then I'll let that chase occur. Uh, oftentimes the bird flies completely out of the picture and with my finished dogs, I'm either going to recall them to heal or I'm going to allow for a delayed chase. The key is that I have control over that. If I allow for a delayed chase, I need to be able to call my dog out of that delayed chase and either move them in a different direction or recall them all the way back to me. But having the power to release that dog into chase gives me the opportunity to either say, Hey, you've done a good job. Here's your reward. And it's just chase or it's to say, um, Hey, you look a little either lackadaisical or a little sorry or soft about something. You're worrisome about something. Hey, you have this chase, bring your attitude back up. It's still in play. You did everything right. Um, you don't need to, to worry about me. You don't need to, to soften up and you, and I certainly want you to stay engaged and intense and in the game. And, and so having the power to allow for chase and maybe not fully complete the sequence of capture and possess or get a retrieve, uh, there's still plenty of value in that. And so using it to your advantage, I think makes more sense in my opinion than just leaving it off the table completely. You know, and again, some, some maybe more traditional trainers would say, if you have to do that, you don't have a dog that's intense enough in the first place. And that may be well be the case. There are plenty of dogs um, that will watch birds fly off almost indefinitely without having one shot for them and stay in the game and stay engaged. Uh, even most of those guys, even if they're not allowing for retrieve, a lot of times those guys are going to shoot a bird, bring it back to the dog. There's going to be some level of excitement. There's going to be some, uh, uh, you know, um, release of dopamine that we're aiming for when that happens. Uh, you know, but it's, it's for me, it's, it's going to center around chase and then controlling chase as opposed to never allowing for it in the first place. Um, I'm going to just take a peek at my notes here and see if I can catch up with wherever I was. So that's my tapering and management of chase that I have talked about in the past. I've talked about kind of how I accomplish that. I like to use really hard flying loose birds and really sparse cover. Um, a lot of times I'm working in a pine stand with, with kind of minimal, uh, undergrowth, uh, but places that the birds can kind of get a, escape to, or, or especially stay on the ground and, and hole up in and, and kind of stick there and hopefully pin a little bit for the dogs. And then once those dogs, you know, have been through their chase management portion and recognize that it's not up to them to release themselves to chase, but to re- await to either be released or moved on, um, those, those dogs, I think get the idea, especially of being staunch pretty solidly, 
you know, if, uh, and, and, and we're dealing in, in motive here, right? Like why, why put the bird into the air? If when you do it incorrectly, you're never going to get to satisfy any other drive. Now, there are certainly exceptions to that rule. There are a few dogs out there that are happy to put a bird in the air just to stand and watch them fly off. But I would say that they are exceptions to the rule. And and then when that happens, you it you have an encyclopedia of ways to deal with it. And because now we're going back into being a little more disciplinary, disciplinary ahead of the flush. And that is, uh, in my opinion, kind of a more traditional way of thinking about this. And that kind of wraps that whole process up. And, you know, this is, this to me is where I find the value in coming back and, and teaching stopping and standing still. So this is where woe would come into play for me. Now you're running birds up in the woods just to watch them fly away or you're not, you're super staunch and you're and usually a dog will break themselves out to shot here. Um, because they're not allowed to chase anyway. If the shot drops the bird, and then and it's pretty simple to break them out beyond shot at this point. Maybe not all the way to fall, um, but oftentimes dogs will break themselves to the fall, not through the fall, uh, through this process. If the bird flies, uh, I may shoot a blank gun. That doesn't mean you can chase. I shoot the bird. It falls out of the sky. Most times, uninhibited dogs are going to go out there and grab that bird. And, and if we've done our job, bring it back to us. So if I'm not inhibiting the the retrieve on a fallen bird, then I've broken my dog out steady through the shot, steady to shot, steady to the point of the fall, but not through the fall, if that makes sense. So when we think of steady to wing shot and fall, when we say that most people consider that the the bird has been shot, it falls out of the sky. Now I release my dog to go get that and bring it back to me. Um, if I'm, if all I'm doing is, is, uh, using my blank gun or my, or, shooting blanks from a shotgun. Basically what I'm saying is if I'm teaching my dog all of these things, not inhibiting the chase beyond the shot, meaning I shoot the bird, bird falls out of the sky and I don't tell my dog it's not okay to go get it at that point, then I've gotten steady to shot pretty naturally. And, and that, that kind of occurs in that fashion. Um, it's, kind of getting the value in woe. There's several places that's important. I like stop to flush and, and I, and stop to woe for me almost becomes an extension of stop to flush. Uh, so the first time my dog is, is really will find out that it's inappropriate to move from a static position is in a stop to flush scenario. We're cruising through the field Bird flies, I stop you with maybe just a little bit of feedback on the check cord. And then if you begin to move on on your own, I'm going to tell you, hey, that's not nah, just wait for me to tell you that you might get a little correction for stepping out. And then, boom, you know, then I release you, whether I release you to chase or I bring you back in and we move on to the next bird. Uh, it doesn't matter. But imagine we draw that out, we extend that. And that's the way you've seen me stop you every time you've been stopped. Now, when I tug on that check cord, so I'm going to change that from flush, stop you on the check cord, ask you to stand still, and I'm going to begin to put just a bit of a tug on the check cord ahead of the flush, and you're going to that's going to predict a flush. Now, when you feel a tug on a check cord, whether there's a flush or there's not, you're stopping and anticipating a flush. So I get a nice, stylish 
uh, quote unquote, woe, if you will. And then I can put a little more discipline to that. And if I have a dog that's challenging my bird, I can bring it into that situation and, and clean it up from there. But we're really, I mean, we're beyond what I would ever ask a dog, a dog to accomplish in a basic pointing program. This is breaking a dog out all the way. And this is where, you know, we all have questions about it and not every dog is similar. Not every dog is going to fall into place. I do think that this is a way of thinking. That's not a method in my opinion. It's a way of thinking about how predator prey relationships work and stalking works. And I think it does allow me to work with a pretty broad array of dogs, pointing dogs. Um, so, you know, and so it, it kind of brings me to the, I'm going to wrap up the thought on finishing a dog and, and really get into woe. So the difference between chase management and woe, and I've talked about this in the past. So the first time I'm going to introduce chase management, I, you know, for me, it's going to be an e-collar. Um, and, uh, I'm going to have a dog that has a very, very well understood, deeply ingrained, uh, recall. It, it's going to know how to turn off pressure by pointing its nose at me and making action in my direction. And we're going to give it that initial chase. And the first time it's recalled, it's going to be in a, in a heightened state of arousal because it's had a chase, but the chase is going to be over and the point is going to be moot. So the chase is over. The dog is, uh, you know, hopefully kind of recognizing that. And then it gets a recall. And from there we taper it back. And mo more times than not, what happens in this situation is at, through doing that through with, you know, lots of repetitions and slowly tapering that back. Um, meaning, you know, time from the flush to the end of the chase. Uh, the first time I do it, the chase is completely over the second time or second time I do it, the chase is completely over. That may happen 10, 15, who knows how many times, as long as I see the dogs responding well, understand it doesn't have its feelings hurt by the process, staying in drive, but being manageable. Then I can say, Hey, you're three quarters of the way through your chase. I'm going to ask you to recall here. You're halfway through your chase. I'm going to ask, ask you to recall there. You're a quarter of the way into your chase. I'm going to ask you to recall there. You're still keeping your high attitude. You're still engaged with your bird. You're still coming back to me, spinning around to mark that chase and, and want, worry about that chase. And then eventually that bird leaves and that dog maybe takes a step or two and arrests its own momentum to watch that bird away. Oftentimes it stays in that position, right? Without any woe training or, or static you know, duration and position training. Um, sometimes it'll default to recall and, and I'm not going to freak out about that. If it does, I'd much prefer it just stand and watch this bird away. But then I come back, I teach my woe. The important thing, the real distinction between recall and woe to me, and this is, I'm not using a ton of verbal commands as I'm teaching these, right? Is a static command, a static uh, momentary stimulation from the e-collar or whether it be that or a tug on the pinch collar or whatever it is, it's momentary. It's a moment in time. And, and I think of that as a positive punisher, right? So if my dog's getting in the trash can, I say, no, Nick on the collar or no, whatever, you know, pop from the, the leash at that point, that's a, a static cue. It means to stop what you're doing. That's positive punishment. Stop the behavior. In the case of that Nick in stopping a behavior in the field, just stop motion. And, and if I put that in context through my stop to flush progression to my, to my tug flush progression, and then I put a little, a low, low level Nick ahead of, because it's important for me to introduce this to the dog in a way that it's not a correction. Um, and this, and this is where 
the, the terms can get a little bit muddy. You often hear people talk about collar cues. And in my opinion, if I'm cueing a dog with a collar, it's, it's not producing pain in a notable way, in a, um, in an important way, right? It's not, but it, it may, it may predict pain, but it's not necessarily painful. It's just a, a, a sensation you're familiar with and it means something. That's a cue. So whether it be a verbal cue from me, um, you know, uh, or a, uh, a nick on the collar or a tug on the leash, it's not something that you should be afraid of in and of itself, but it is, it's saying, Hey, this is a moment where I want you to perform this behavior. This is the cue. Um, and so it's important for me that that be a static cue because I'm going to reinforce it and I'm not going to reinforce it. I'm going to punish any extra movement essentially with a static correction. If you feel a nick, stop and stand still and don't move. It's as simple as that. And that diverges from some other traditional methods that may use continuous pressure until all four feet are planted firmly on the ground. Uh, and those work. There's, you know, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but for me, I think there's a real clarity and understanding the difference between a momentary stem on the collar and a continuous stem on the collar and a continuous stem on the collar will always for me mean do something, produce an action to turn that, that off and stopping and standing still is a non-action. Um, for the most part, it's, a, it's, it's, I'm telling you to stop. And if you're feeling continuous pressure, I'm telling you to go or to come, whatever it may be. And so early on, you feel continuous pressure and you recall, you're never going to be wrong. Now, there's going to be times where I come back and I introduce what I would consider push. So anybody's familiar with Pat Nolan um, and and the push-pull way of thinking about uh, about continuous pressure, that'll come into play later for me. But for now, you feel continuous pressure, create momentum and get home. You feel momentary pressure, stop stop what you're doing, stand still and watch your bird away. So I, I hope that that wasn't too redundant. Um, I hope that that clarified maybe the points I have been trying to make all along as I talk about my system of bird dog training or the way I think about bird dog training. Um, but that, that kind of goes into pointing dogs. And, and you know, and, I, and there is... Um, I do think that for me, chase management applies to flushers as well. And you, and you're probably going to hear or, or know maybe of of folks that would not want chase at all in their flusher. And that's fine. And that, and I think a lot of those traditions come from a time, you know, probably before the e-collar when all we had the opportunity to do was restrain and correct, you know, so if I'm tethered to the dog physically, those are, that's my options. I can either drop the check cord, let you chase, I can restrain you on back pressure, which is going to frustrate you and make you want to come in and harder, right? And it's going to frustrate you. And if I release that, you're going to chase with probably more zeal. And and that's how we use back pressure in, in that in that drive building phase, you know, that making of the monster of the puppy. I want them to be frustrated and I want that to come out in a release. Um, uh, you know, so, or we can correct you and say, hey, if you move again, you're going to feel another correction. That's that's what we're limited to on a check cord on an e-collar. Once the dog understands how to manipulate pressure, and I've done a good enough job of tipping the balance from, I don't want to squash drive with my e-collar. And that's why the conditioning process is so important. I want you to perform behavior, get out of pressure. And hey, there's still the hope that you may be able to satiate drive if you do what's asked of you. If not, you got to come back and and chill and wait till the next move, right? Um, so. 
for me, I'm going to use that same process in my flushers. The great thing about flushers and, and the risk we run, I think, in flushers, and, and this is a conversation I'd really like to have with a, with a higher level flushing dog pro because that's not my game, right? But I do think we run the risk of creating point and at least softening the flush when I manage chase or restrain chase or remove chase. And so for that reason, I think, and, and I can allow my flushing dog to engage more compromised birds. Um, I want them to catch birds on the ground on occasion for me personally. So if they come up on a, on a poor flying pigeon and they snatch that thing out of the air, uh, it's, it's in, in my opinion, reinforced the, uh, uh, the potential, uh, for them to flush harder the next time. If they go in and flush the bird and immediately hit the brakes and they're corrected for not hitting the brakes, then they may be a little more cautious about their flush the next time around. And so for me personally, a little bit of caution or a little bit of a soft flush is not a big deal, but I don't want my flushing dogs to become pointers. And so I always have to bear that in mind. But yes, I do, you know, I do essentially manage chase in the exact same way with my flushers as I'm, as I'm teaching these behaviors. Um, so hopefully that makes sense too. I wanted to cover that. And, you know, when we talk about balance, I don't mind towing the balance and steadiness. I, I don't mind a dog being on the edge of steadiness and wondering and thinking and maybe even acting upon its desire to chase early on. What I want is for that dog to get to the place where it sees the big picture till it be, till the mechanics become muscle memory and it no longer feels like it's losing something in the flush. Um, and, and what I mean by that is no longer having the flush necessarily, uh, be what we might consider negative punishment. You know, I'm not taking this thing away from you. You're just gaining more opportunities for the next phase of this sequence. And, uh, and so that big picture, I love that, that kind of imagery and, uh, that I got that from, um, that training with Mo book that, that, you know, he and Martha discuss the big picture at, at, you know, at length in there. And, and that's the, what we're aiming towards. That's the objective is for our dog to see that. So, um, you know, I appreciate you guys hanging in there for that. Uh, it, it's always, you know, the, the solo ones when I'm really trying to keep my thoughts in order are a little tougher, but I feel like I got through that one. Okay. I'm sure there's plenty of stuttering and stammering. Um, but, uh, but you know, it, it's hard to think and do all this stuff at the same time, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy with that. Uh, you know, in closing, um, you know, reach out if you got stuff. I'd like I said, I'm, I'm looking to try to become a little more disciplined with putting this content out, uh, because the, the more I put the effort into doing these things, I think the better I get at doing them in, in practice. So I want that to continue for me. So we're aiming it every other week. I'm, you know, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try and stick to my guns on that, but we'll see how it goes. And, and so in the meantime, please reach out if you do have questions or if you have, if you, if you want to argue, <laughs> whatever, you know, if you don't like what I'm saying, um, reach out to me. I'm, I, I'm interested in what other people's thoughts are. And, and I think, uh, you know, that, that kind of, um, engagement will help us all grow. You know, if it, maybe I can, can learn something from somebody else and I'm always open to that. Uh, so just for general, um, kind of self-promotional stuff that this gives me the opportunity to do, uh, I'm, I'm booked right now through November. Uh, I'm starting to book some for spring of 24 for my, my general programs. 
Um, if you have questions about what any of those programs are, just check my website. That's www.losthighwaykennels.com. Um, I do have openings. I haven't booked anything right yet for January, and I'm still wanting to kind of keep on the same thing we did last year. And, and usually we need to get a little closer to hunting season for that, but I'm going to continue my um, quote unquote training hunts. So these will be, we're going to go out and hunt wild birds. Uh, it will not be a guided hunt in the sense that I take you to a honey hole somewhere and you get to blast a bunch of birds. It's going to be you and I doing a little bit of map study, thinking about where we want to go. You bring in your dog, hopefully, um, because this is a dog training evolution first and foremost, uh, but also a, a human training evolution. This is about how to hunt woodcock uh, in the Southeast, you know, at least in, in my neck of the woods is something I, I, I don't consider myself an expert really on anything, but I feel like I've got some experience in that area and, uh, I'm happy to share it with folks that have a general interest in that. But again, you know, there, there are other guides out there. If what you're looking to do is to be taken to birds and shoot birds. Um, there's a good, there's a chance. And it happened a couple of times last year that we get skunked. Um, but I think it was still a learning experience for those, but most times we found birds and a couple of times we had a, uh, we had a grand old shoot. So, um, the potential exists for any of those. Anytime you go hunting, uh, you know, that's why it's so much fun because, uh, you, you know, there's, a, there's, a, you never know exactly how it's going to play out. And, and that's the interesting part. Um, so that, that's going to be January. If you're interested in that, or you're interested in sending me a dog, if I'm going to take any dogs for that January timeframe, I'm probably going to limit myself to four and those dogs will go hunting with me. That's, that's what that program is about. So this is going to be a wild bird program. I'm going to need dogs that, uh, it, it would be preferable if they were dogs that I had put through a program previously, um, but if they're handling bird dogs that just need wild bird exposure and wild bird hunting, um, I will, uh, kind of consider those on a case by case basis. I'd probably want to meet with you first and, and let's make sure that the dog will handle for me. Let's not make sure that I'm not going to contradict what you've done at the, to this point in training so hard that it, it confuses the dog. I want to make sure I'm taking a dog that's going to be on the same page with me. Um, and that we're not, you know, having to base essentially, you know, turn into a hunting dog before I take it. Um, so if you got a good hunting dog out there, maybe it's not pointing birds the way you want it to. Maybe it's just only had preserve experience in its life and, and you'd like it to get some wild bird experience. Then that's the kind of dog I'm looking for, for that program. Uh, all those dogs will be in what I call my companion program. So they'll all be living in the house with me. They'll all be, uh, loading up in the truck daily and, and heading to the woods with me. So, um, if that's something that appeals to you or, uh, you're, you're interested in, give me a shout. Um, Another thing I wanted to talk about was the St. Hubert trial. Uh, and, and it's really become kind of, a um, something I think a lot about. I'm really excited about it. So we've, we've got some plans. I was able this year, uh, and, and my hope is, is to get myself out of this thing all the way. I love the trial format. I love the program, the St. Hubert trial for those that don't know, uh, it, it's something that's been going on in Europe for about a half a century. Um, and it's for hunters and, and their dogs first and foremost. And it's less about like a field trial where we're going to pick the best dog of the day and more about, uh, we're picking the hunter dog team, uh, that's not necessarily the most effective, but is, is the most over, you know, um, overall, uh, kind of, 
what's what's the word I'm looking for? The type of person and dog you'd like to, to to go hunting with. I mean, that's really at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to select for, and that's what I want all the judges that judges thing to know. You know, there's going to be some checks in the boxes they got to hit in order to to win, but what we're really aiming at is is a day's hunt. It's a 20 minute course. You got a, a maximum of two pieces of game you can take. Um, you know, and and you know your marksmanship will play a role. Your dogs bird work will play a role, but overall it's, are you a good sportsman? Uh, are you a thoughtful, thoughtful sportsman? Are you a, uh, are you approaching the game and the course with respect? Do you have, do you understand gun safety? Um, also, you know, Hey, are you having fun? And are you, you know, are you uh, competent in the field with your dog? And so that's, that's what that's about. It looks like we're, we've, uh, set a date um, for the weekend of February 3rd and 4th for that. It's going to be headed up by Three Rivers Land Trust. So it'll be on their grounds. I'm super pumped. It's going to be a completely natural setting. Um, they've been very generous in allowing us to uh, to host this trial uh, on the Point property um, along the Adkin River, just north of Salisbury, North Carolina. It's beautiful. It's it's got a population of wild birds. So we won't be hunting quail while we're out there. We're going to chucker will be the game of the day. Um, uh, it, but they are, you know, all proceeds are going to go to them and the bird dog society. So if you, if you register for this trial and, and come to play in it, there's a testing component, you get 60% of your points, um, which you could do. I, you can do without killing any birds. Honestly, if you go out there and you have a good dog, it'll certainly help to kill a bird or two and get your retrieve score and all those things. But you could, in in theory, go out there whiff on all your game um, and and still pass as long as you have, you know, a, a relatively obedient dog and you're out there having fun and, and, and not being uh, dangerous or uh, or having a bad attitude in any way, um, then, then you'll earn the title of practical hunting dog there. So that's a pass fail component. That's a test component. And then we're going to select winners and we're going to have a, uh, a trialers class for those of you that may, um, have higher level bird dogs and you want to compete on a little higher scale. So that trialers class, you know, we're expecting broke, broke bird dog work and steady to wing shot and fall, retrieving the hand, all that stuff. You win that you're going to go out there and you're going to have a great dog and you're going to be a good handler. And then we're going to have a hunter's class and the hunter's class is, uh, not just for fun. I mean, you know, we want to see folks go out there and, and put on the best show and have the best time and, and have good, clean bird dog work, but we're not expecting, you know, the, the, the highest level manners. We just want to see a good, effective, efficient bird dog team out there. So there's going to be a little something for everybody. We're going to have flushers and pointer, uh, divisions and it'll be all upland right now. I am, uh, thinking very hard about adding maybe a water component or more of a retrieve waterfowl scenario, but it, that's likely not to happen this year, but I'll just stay abreast of it. Keep up with it. If it's something you're really interested in and you'd like to see that, certainly let me know if that would be something you'd be interested. That would, uh, that would help me make that decision. But I think that would be a lot of fun too, um, to add a little, little bit of a versatile component to the game. But, uh, I love that game. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's got a broad appeal. I think it lends itself extremely well, uh, to a conservation mindset and can help our conservation partners. And that's that Three Rivers Land Trust who's hosting it. They're also going to be um, uh, taking a large part of the proceeds. The other 
part of the proceeds will be going to the Bird Dog Society, uh, who's an, a newer organization that I'm super excited about. And I'll be uh, doing a workshop with them in September. And unfortunately, I don't have uh, the flyer in front of me. But but if you're listening to this and you're interested in any of that, um, certainly go visit Three Rivers Land Trust uh, or, uh, or the bird dog society, both are a quick Google away. It won't be hard to find. And both are, uh, are, are the good guys. They are, they're, you know, three rivers is a local group to us. They're a land trust with a sportsman's access program. They're into sportsman's access. So they hold a lot of private land and they, they have programs that allow the public to access those for hunting in an organized way. And, and people are very successful in that program. I've been doing it, uh, gosh, for four years now, and I never miss my opportunity to get out there and, and hunt the blocks that I pull. Um, and I'm grateful that they're here and, and for the work they do for our local area, they've done so much for, uh, for the wildlife commission and, uh, adding new game lands, turning game, turning lands over to the state that were held privately in the game game lands uh, program before. Um, it's what we want. It's what, and they're managing the land too. And, and they're doing a wonderful job, tons of biodiversity, uh, for everyone. Um, you know, so if you're a hiker paddler, you still need to be out there paying attention to these guys. But for us sportsmen, um, I cannot think, uh, of, of anybody doing more for us in my neck of the woods. And that's the Adkin Valley in North Carolina. Um, and then bird dog society national organization, they're, they have that, you know, and I don't have their mission in front of me right now, but I will tell you that the people involved are, are again, the good guys. Um, and it's promoting bird dog. There's so many of us that are new to it that don't know where to start. And, and one thing that they are, I think setting themselves apart, uh, from other organizations that may exist out there are just helping people become educated, uh, in, in, in this little, you know, uh, little subculture of ours in, in bird dogs. And so, you know, if you've got an interest in training veterinary care, uh, if you want, if you're looking for public access, if you're looking for things to do with your dogs, if you're looking for groups to be with that, that's the place to start. So go check out bird dog society, uh, go check out three rivers land trust. If you come to this trial, you will become a member of both of those organizations with your entry fee. And, uh, and they'll be there to, to, kind of, uh, do a heck of a lot better job of explaining what it is they do than I've just done. But believe me, you want it, you want to be around these people. They're, they're, they're the, uh, the folks moving the ball in the right direction for us all. So, you know, thanks for listening guys. And, uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you guys all in February. And also we're looking like we're going to have another St. Hubert's trial that will be actually in the calendar year, 2023. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm right now talking to Trey Wright up in, uh, Caswell County, uh, about what that's going to look like. So, so stay tuned for that. We're going to get that on the books and, and that'll probably be a good, uh, if you have questions about how this is going to run, um, what it's all about, that'll be a good opportunity for you as well. And you're looking for getting one in the calendar year 23. So again, thanks. Um, uh, we'll be back hopefully, uh, the week after next and, uh, shoot me some topics if you got anything you want to discuss. So, um, take care. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. 
As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.